Welcome, everyone, to episode 20 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, featuring David and Ben. <laughs> we did it <laughs> reverse-wise this time round. Yeah. Uh, well, exciting. it's a curveball. It's all about the thrills on the Metabilis <laughs> 2 podcast. So season season 14, which I think we've just called out to each other as one of the strongest seasons of Classic Who. Yeah, it's pretty consistent all the way through the season. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think particularly, since we're continuing our theme of horror in yes. Who, I think it's a, it is a particularly horrible season as well. Plenty... Plenty for the horror fan to get their teeth into. Yeah, we are continuing on with the horror mashup that the Hinchcliffe and Holmes have keyed up on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't we slam straight into The Mask of Mandragora, which I will have to admit when I watched this in 1976, and I was just approaching my 10th birthday at Mm -hmm. this point, I didn't know what a mask was. I, 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 I um, because of course, as we know, yeah. Hieronymus wears a mask. Right. Um, I thought it was like a different way to spell mask. I didn't really understand. It's the fancy way. It's the fancy way to spell mask, <laughs> rather than a kind of Renaissance-style party. Now, did it key in towards episode four when they actually had the mask? <laughs> Uh, no, I completely <laughs> blanked this one out. Okay. Actually, I can remember being vaguely, uh, what's the word? I didn't really care for this one at the time. I didn't care for the Renaissance trappings. I didn't really know what the Renaissance was, and I didn't really care what the Renaissance was either. Uh-huh. I thought it was all a bit silly. I thought people were prancing around in tights. It looked like a bit like Shakespeare or something to me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hugely care for it. But of course, uh, you know, now that I am older and wiser... Um, this is actually a pretty good slice of, you know, Roger, almost kind of Roger Corman style, Vincent Price, you know, Mask of the Red Death, exactly. Mask of Ma- Mandragora. Um, yeah. It's it's really riffing off one of those, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. And with a little bit of a, a touch of Hamlet with Shakespeare there. Absolutely, yeah. And it, and it does have some of that nasty, um, you know, Renaissance torture uh, stuff going on as well. Mm-hmm. I think the thumb screws are threatened at one point. Um, there's definitely some human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I think actually also at the time, I think I remember thinking the Mandragora Helix was a was a reasonably weak enemy. Um, you know, it was like a an, an energy blob of some right. kind. I'm not quite sure. Have um, you po- you possibly know this better than I do? Have fans retconned the Mandragora Helix into any particular kind of nothing that I'm aware of? But... Um, you know, does, is it one of the great old ones or something? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> there's a, there's always series ten. <laughs> there is always series ten. Exactly, exactly. The return of the Mandragora Helix. So we have some kind of the horror tropes in this story with of, uh, Sarah Jane being put up on the altar yeah. with the sacrifice. Um, I struggle with this one as seen as kind of a horror thing, mainly because I've never really seen this this genre of horror with uh, the Vincent Price, the uh, Mask of the Red Death or anything. How, how similar is it? Apart from it being all kind of vaguely Renaissance and people kind of prancing about a bit and masks, you know, like Stanley Kubrick or something. Right. Uh, it's it's not it's it's a it's not really. I mean, they could have gone a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the Italian Renaissance, despite its title, uh, it was a pretty horrible time for most people um, in terms of torture, death, destruction, all round nastiness. Mm -hmm. I feel they could have turned it up a little bit and really gone 
a little bit stronger in with the with the unpleasantness of the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance. So, like, um, like, what would you have done differently, or what do you think they? Where do you think they could have gone? Um, we could have had more obvious torture. I think really, really for tea time terror. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think you know. I, I, I mean, let's let, let's actually see a set of, a set of thumb screws mm, at this point. A mm. um, lot of people being burnt at the stake. I think we probably could have gone there mm. rather than a, um, a burning at the stake. I think is always more exciting than a simple beheading, um, which is, you know, relatively tedious way to kill someone. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they could have they could have pushed it forward a little bit. And, and I and again, you know, some, uh, the whole plague, the kind of dirt plague aspect, you know, the, obviously the, the plague is the central theme of the, the, of the mm. Vincent Price movie, Mask of the Red right, Death. Okay. And I think we could have, in, you know, there is a there is a this hint about disease and things. Mm-hmm in mask but i i think we could have enhanced that better they certainly could have played up the blueness of the corpse when they were hit by the mandragora yeah, energy and I, 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 in, in rewatches i kind of get the impression that that might have been something that was in kind of earlier drafts right, okay again you'll have to correct me if i'm wrong but i think uh, lewis marx the writer yes. You know, wrote his graduate thesis on the Renaissance or something ridiculous. So he wanted to put a lot of Renaissance stuff in there mm. because I think as as a theme that's that's actually come out in in a lot of our podcasts. You know, these are kind of these are these sort of middle aged white men um, who have you know very uh, sort of heightened idea of a uh, concept of the uh, importance of particular kinds of history. Mm-hmm. I think my impression is that Marx was keen to downplay the unpleasantness of the early renaissance and keen to kind of upplay um the uh the the good parts mm-hmm. of the renaissance and again i think that the, there's a balance there's a there's a balance theme in mask of mandragora between you know, the mandragora helix wanting to kind of drag human civilization back to the hideousness of the middle ages mm. and by the, the doctor defeating it allows the renaissance to kind of fully fully flourish i think that very kind of dualist idea between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance isn't really super accurate. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of wearing my medieval historian hat here. The Middle Ages were a lot better than people think they were, a lot less dark, mm-hmm. um, and the Renaissance was a lot more dark and a lot more unpleasant mm-hmm. than people think it is. So that's just my take. Yeah, this one was kind of an odd duck, and I guess uh, watching some of the DVD extras on the story DVD, the filming location in Port Marion in Wales was one of the enticements to have Liz do this extra season here. She was thinking right. about... Uh, thinking about yeah. going. Right, right, right. Well, then let's let's slide on then to, um, I think, you know, the horror mm-hmm. bits of Mask of Mandragora. I think it's really in the title. Yeah. It's making us think about other kind yeah. of, you know, more impressionistic horror movies. It has the elements. I mean, I think their working title is like the Catacombs of Death. So they have the Catacombs. I would have preferred Catacombs of Death, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> I really would have preferred that as a title. You um, probably would have lashed yeah. onto it a little better. Absolutely. If it had been called Catacombs of Death, I'd been on it like 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 a catacomb, like a deathly catacomb <laughs> on someone else. Um, Mask of Mandragora, I didn't understand the title. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, anyway. Um, Hand of Fear, however, the next one, was absolutely stonking. I remember very much enjoying this one. And actually, I can actually remember my... Um, 10th birthday party which was uh, on the uh, uh, episode 2 of the Hand of Fear it was on, on that Saturday um, I made all my friends sit around and watch episode 2 of Hand of Fear which we all, uh-huh. we all very much enjoyed I would kind of link it to The Mask of Mandragora hmm. there's not a lot in it that's particularly horrific mm-hmm. but 
because there is a scuttling hand. Well, that is right. Uh, we, you know, we have the beast with five fingers, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Or it yeah. in the Adams family. Right. So it's it's a link to a horror movie, but there's there's relatively little in this that is that is horrible. Right. Would you agree? Yeah, the main horror element is the possession of Sarah from the ring and the hand. So yeah. we have a return of the theme of possession for Sarah's right. final story. And the hand itself is kind of creepy, but it's it's not done creepy in sort of a horror way. I think it's done creepy in a sci-fi sort of way, if, there, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I'm get, I'll do this all the time as we talk through these seasons, as, as regular listeners have noticed. I mean, I will, I will kind of rewind myself back to my boyhood. Mm-hmm. We all thought, me and my friends, my friends and I, uh, that you know, the possession of Sarah was super cool. Right. And we did go around at school going, Eldred must live as much as possible, um, <laughs> because that was a super cool thing to right. say. I do remember even at that relatively early age, being intensely disappointed that the reconstituted Eldrad, um, uh, you know, when Eldrad emerges from the nuclear Re- reaction chamber, or whatever the hell she emerges from, as a female, mm-hmm. was not Elizabeth Slate. Ah, okay. um, I remember thinking, like, that would have been so awesome if the hand had taken the, you know, the genetic DNA print of actually of Sarah and re- and it was Elizabeth Sladen in kind of evil monster makeup. Interesting. I'm not sure why they didn't hmm. do that because that would have been very, very cool. As an older viewer, I am actually very impressed that they got an actress of the caliber of Judith Paris, who is... Uh, amazing. <laughs> amazing actor, actress, actor. In a lot of great cult movies, I have just uh, recently watched um, Ken Russell's The Devils, mm-hmm. um, and Judith is one of the possessed, one of the chief possessed nuns in The Devils. If no one's, none of our listeners have seen The Devils, um, <laughs> it is an absolutely amazing film, very, very frightening, very, very horrible. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, for for an older viewer, you know, Judith Paris is intimately linked with a classic, a classic kind of Gonzo horror movie right. like like The Devils. Not really much horrific, though, in The Hand of Fear. Not really, but there are links to kind of other horror right. movies. So, I, again, you know, I'm wondering whether the intention was just to kind of resonate maybe with older viewers. Um, oh, yeah, you know, this is the five fingers of blah, 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 mm-hmm. or, you know, the devils or whatever, and kind of get that horror feeling from that resonance. The thing that bothered me about this story, and I, I came upon this later as probably as a parent or in my uh, mid-30s, when I was re-watching this, is yes, there's a lot of needless deaths, I thought, in this story. <laughs> that didn't, even, didn't, even for, even Doctor, for Who. Doctor Who. And this could have been one of them where we really didn't need to have anyone die other than Eldrad. Right, and so right. I Well, I think this is, isn't there the famous goodbye scene where the uh, director of Newton... Right. Uh, Glenn Houston, as Professor Watson, call, calls his wife and says, you know, Darling, I'm not coming home for dinner because I got to get blown up right. in a nuclear explosion. Well, that's yeah, that's very, very touching. That's very, very adult themed. Yeah, but when un, perhaps unnecessarily adult. But the, yeah. where where Rex Robinson, you know, gets possessed and tries to brain the doctor with a wrench and then overshoots and then falls off the scaffolding. Uh, that just it just it just didn't strike me as very well fitting within the character of the story. It just, it was just, it just didn't fit. 
And I think, I mean, I think in general, I mean, I think the story is a bit of a mess. I mean, all Bob Baker and Dave Martin's stories are kind of messy. Mm. I think that their stories have a lot to commend them. Um, I think their catchphrases are always wonderful. Great for the kids. They always have some, <laughs> yeah, they have some great kind of gonzo concepts. But in terms of kind of stringing everything together and having a satisfactory resolution, that's really something that they're not that good at. Yeah. Yeah. If only K-9 had been in this <laughs> Well... <laughs> K9's coming next season. Oh, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> All right. The most famous scene is the goodbye scene. That was written by uh, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen. Yeah, which was one I very much appreciated again, and you're going to have another anecdote about my childhood. Um, the owl that Liz Sladen <laughs> carries away with her. My sister had several of those owls. They were very, very popular at the yeah. time. So you fit right Especially in. Especially with girls. <laughs> well, and Sarah certainly was a girl. <laughs> and she certainly was the greatest of all girls. <laughs> um, I, I know often, you know, one is told that kind of, you know, calling something, you know, being a girl is not a good thing. You shouldn't call people mm. girls. But, uh, you yeah, let's let's just kind of honor the character Sarah Jane Smith and let's honor the, the, the portrayal of her by Elizabeth Sladen. She is the greatest girl of them all and gives girls a really good mm-hmm. reputation. And she wasn't playing her journalist self in that last episode where she's going out in her Andy Pandy uh, she's going outfit. Full, full Andy Pandy, yeah. Carrying yeah. out a stuffed animal. So yeah. you can look at it as a character that Letts and Dick started out with, the, you know, the feisty young journalist. Um, certainly she isn't that same character at the end of Hand of Fear. Maybe, you know, we're, we're supposed to be talking about right. horror rather than kind of, you know, characters. But, I mean, let me just say, I mean, I think actually to me, I think she's a more well-rounded and actually a slightly more realistic character mm-hmm. by the end. She's certainly more human mm-hmm. than a kind of deliberately written kind of antagonistic, you know, avatar of mid to late 70s women's lib. Right. I think she becomes less of a caricature. Exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Yes, exactly, exactly. So we leave Sarah behind in uh, Croydon or (laughs) Aberdeen or wherever it is. Can I I, I just say, I was really gutted that Sarah Jane left the show. I still am. And that... (laughs) I still, I still am gutted. Um, I was very, very hostile coming into Deadly Assassin. Mm-hmm. I was like, why can't the Doctor take Sarah to, to Gallifrey? Right. This is nonsense. Mm-hmm. He's just being a dick. <laughs> um, you know, she's lovely. Right. Why is he leaving her behind? She's my favorite character. So I was angry. I was mm-hmm. angry going to the, in, into Deadly Assassin, age 10. And uh, Doctor Who Appreciation Society was pretty angry about... <laughs> This story back when it was broadcast in 1976, I think it wound up at the bottom of the fan poll at the end of the end of the season. So it did. It it has uh, gained some traction in fandom over the past uh, 40 years. It 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 certainly has, and um, let's just say it is. It's a pretty much a horror show all the way through. Yeah, uh, right. You yeah. know, Gallifrey's grim and it's dark. It's, it's, it's as mysterious as I think it was in earlier mm-hmm. depictions of the Time Lords, but it's mysterious in a kind of a stupid, pointless sort of right. way, rather than mysterious in a kind of deliberate way. Mm-hmm. I remember being very shocked where the Doctor is tortured by the Chancery Guard, mm. uh, you know, which is a pretty horrific torture scene. Right. I mean, the Doctor being tortured is always nasty. Well, he's uh, strung up by his arms and he's exactly. profusely sweating and he's screaming in agony. It's it's not it's pleasant. It's hardcore, yeah. yeah. It's not pleasant at all. 
and then of course we we loved Roger Delgado. He was just just this wonderful portrayal of this of this kind of urbane villain. Mm-hmm. To see that character who was so well loved, you know, reduced. And I think reduced is a good word. Reduced to the the level of this kind of desiccated, sniveling corpse figure was absolutely horrific it's like oh my god is that what the master is now and it was horrible it was horrible to see and both horrible in terms of you know the the master again he's lost all of his uh, witty urbane evil and he's just become something that is just bent on revenge pointless Mm -hmm. and self-destructive revenge very very nasty stuff i guess the movie of the week that we're doing is the manchurian candidate in some ways Absolutely, Manchurian Candidate. We're also, uh, you know, we're, we're doing kind of Kennedy assassination right. in general as well. And when we have the Matrix episodes, and you know, fans of the film The Matrix mm-hmm. take notice. This is where the Matrix first happened. We're also enter- entering into, you know, those kind of crazy dream brainwash sequences in Manchurian Candidate as well, mm-hmm. and actually kind of crazy dream sequences across all the kind of movie kind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got we've got clowns, we've got assassins, we've got weird landscapes, right. spiders. Um, I mean, the <laughs> spiders. I mean, the Matrix has has, has uh, unfortunately has never been bettered, frequently been less good <laughs> than it was in Episode Three of Deadly Assassin. What I think makes the Matrix very good in the Deadly Assassin is they go on location and they get off a soundstage. And it's a so, real stroke of genius, actually, in that it's real understanding how the show is made. It it becomes realistic, it be, and where they twist reality, like where he, the doctor, hears running water, he brushes away the sand, and he sees a mirror looking at him, but it's a clown face. That type of horror imagery wouldn't work as well if they were doing it on a soundstage. So, it which of course is sorry, carry on. So everything else is set on the soundstage on Gallifrey. So with being filmed out on location, you also have a very different look in the way Inside the Matrix appears on screen compared to Gallifrey, which is on video. So it's very clear demarcation and it gives a really good look to Inside the Matrix that we don't have in subsequent visitations with the Matrix. Exactly, and I think it's a really smart way to play to the weaknesses of the show, Mm -hmm. you know, which is there's this very strong divide between what's shot in the studio and what's shot on location, and they've actually worked with that divide. And, of course, it's a complete inversion because the the Matrix is the false world. Right filmed in the real world mm-hmm. and the real world which is 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 filled in is you know of Gallifrey is filmed in the false world of the studio mm-hmm. which is kind of genius and we have again and this is a theme that I've been talk I've talked about previously on our podcast we have this kind of play world um where you know and again these landscapes that the doctor and got and chancellor goth spoiler alert um uh, battle their way through um are exactly the same southern england you know waste landscapes that my friends and i played in as kids Mm -hmm. so we're absolutely able to relate to the way that you're able to scare people and creep up on people and hide in those kind of landscapes it was a thinly disguised quarry but they did well with it making it seem like 
very hot and jungly in certain oh, jungle yeah i mean you know those kind of surrey hampshire border landscapes right. again where i played as a kid um there are a lot of there's a lots of bamboo you can really play jungle very very easily mm-hmm. my friends and i would play regularly play you know british soldiers versus the japanese in you know world war Two, right. because you could get and you also used to get very hot as well mm-hmm. so um you know, this is all, this all kind of resonated very strongly with me as a kid that, you know, these kind of play landscapes of, 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 of my own mm-hmm. childhood, you know, were being used by Doctor Who as these horror landscapes right. of, of the Matrix and which made it very, very real to me. And this is, and this is probably why to bring Mary Whitehouse into this is because this is one of the shows where she just really freaked out about. And this is where she said it, it had crossed a line. Because mm-hmm. it was very familiar to many of the kids watching it, being that this is uh, the assassin and the the doctor were playing in similar landscapes, playing almost similar games, but at a deadly stakes that kids right. would be playing right. outside. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, you know, I mean, much as I hate Mary Whitehurst and she was an eminently hateable person, um, she was kind of right for this one mm-hmm. really and, and and again i know i've said this before but i'll say it again you know, the the where 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 uh, um i'm just going to call him the deadly assassin where the deadly assassin <laughs> h- holds the doctor's head underwater right. and then you know it's it's freeze same frame time next yeah. week freeze frame it's a whole week you know with the the doctor's head is held underwater for a full seven days um and that's that that's a long time mm-hmm. to have your hero drown a very long time This is what she wrote. So what are we to do? Sit back and say nothing when, after panning to the contorted visage of a demented murderer, the final shot of this particular episode was a close-up shot of the doctor apparently drowned, face lying still beneath the water. Nothing said. A new barrier broken. I I mean, I'll say that as a kid um, watching this, it just made our show, and Doctor Who was very much our show, it made it seem incredibly adult mm. to us mm-hmm. um, and therefore only made us love this show more that it was treating us as adults right. um, and that, you know, our hero could be could be in such severe danger. And that's always been the shortcoming of the Doctor Who, the program, is you always know that the Doctor's going to come out and get out of it alive. Or he's always going to survive. And even though you know that, with that week of the doctor uh, presumably drowned, you don't know if he's going to regenerate. You don't know what's going to happen. So it does add to the peril, to the uh, to the tension, and to uh, fulfill what Hinchcliffe was trying to do is he really wanted to stress the cliffhangers. You have to have a cliffhanger if you want to return audience the next week. And so what better cliffhanger could he have had? in all of his tenure, then the doctor is drowned, held underwater. What's going to happen next week, kids? You better show up. Absolutely. And I think, you know, The Deadly Assassin is, is a succession of really amazing cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. It's a, and again, you know, it has these these horror elements. I mean, the, just the randomness of the, of the Matrix, you know, with the clown and the, the kind of random samurai that turns up right. and starts, you know, for three seconds or so, waving a sword around. Mm-hmm. The aeroplane, the the scary train, um, <laughs> you know. Um, I'll have to say, I, again, thinking back, I think the only 
thing, the only part of the Deadly Assassin which actually could have resulted in me being harmed in some kind of way. I do remember my best friend and I attempting to do the thing where you breathe underwater using a using a reed um, as a as a breathing mechanism, and then actually finding out that you can't actually do that, and you kind of. Uh, uh, that's not actually possible, and, and I, I guess we couldn't have drowned. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I guess stu- it is self-limiting. Stupid children than us could have drowned. Yeah. Anyway. I don't think BBC has anyone documented as drowning trying to use a reed <laughs> as a snorkel. Yeah, I mean, I still like to think that I, if I was ever being pursued by a deadly assassin of some kind, um, I would be able to survive um, the attack of a deadly assassin by hiding underwater using a reed to breathe. Mm-hmm. I think I could do that. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that I could do that. Anyway, so um, moving swiftly on, are we ready to move on to the face of evil? Yeah, I think we've. If we want to talk a little bit more about Peter Pratt's portrayal of the master, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think where the horror comes in with his portrayal is the costume and Pratt's mannerism as the as corpse master. Yeah. He's, you know, it's it's the quiet kind of whispering. It's definitely not Delgado. Yeah, yeah. Um, in some ways, it was a little bit tasteless, possibly, or maybe just slightly ballsy to bring the character back as someone who had been horrifically mm-hmm. injured in some sort of way. But that's okay. I think it's interesting, actually, to contrast Pratt's portrayal of the master with uh, Jeffrey Beaver's master portrayal in the, the Keeper of Traken, which I think we're led to believe is basically the same-ish yes. master. Pratt's portrayal is it's just horrible because the, because the face doesn't move. It's, a, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a mask. You know, you really do get the impression that this is burned, corrupted, immovable flesh, and he has these horrific poached egg eyes. Right, it's skull-like. It's just horrible. Yes. I mean, you know, and in, in a way that actually Beaver's master is actually not really that horrible mm-hmm. at all. It's just like some guy with some makeup mm-hmm. on. But 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 this is this is really it's 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 right. really nasty, really really. Yeah, nasty. I think uh, if memory serves, Pratt was uh, an opera singer or a radio actor or maybe both. He so he really could do a lot with his voice. Really? Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Interesting. So they okay. they hired yeah. someone who could yeah. really work the voice. Yeah. Someone. I mean, I think if you're going to give people masks, hire people who are used to working with masks. Um, right. I mean, I think, you know, a, a really good example of that in Contemporary, who is our contemporary Davros. Right. Um, what's his name? Uh, Beach. Uh, Julian Beach, you know, who is very much an actor who is used to working behind a mask. Right. And I think you need to be able to do that. So we right. land... Comp- the Deadly Assassin. Is there any... I, I know this has been said before. There's no really such thing as an undeadly assassin, is there really? I mean, all assassins are quite deadly. If, if they're successful, if we look at the Day of the Jackal, we had an assassin who wasn't quite deadly. No, that's true. He was, he was pretty deadly. He killed quite a lot of people on his way to being right. undeadly. But he ultimately failed. Yeah, that's true. So. He did, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Um, Face of Evil. What do we uh, think? Very interesting premise. A lovely introduction to Leela. Um, nice, strong sci-fi concept of, you know... Execution. Mm, it seemed like they were saving money on this one. Yeah, um, a couple of things that I think about this one. Well, the first of which is, uh, I'll come on to my horror part after I've said my first piece about Mm -hmm. Face of Evil. I know Matt Irvin worked really, really hard on the sculpture of... of, of, (laughs) Well, um, it's a life mask. Of Tom Tom Baker. Um, I actually thought, and again, I was 10 years old. I can remember being super excited because I thought it was John Pertwee. So did I. Uh, you are not alone um, in that. 
that would be awesome if that was Pertwee. But of course, it wasn't Pertwee. It was just actually a pretty unsuccessful sculpture of, um, of Tom well, Baker. Well, it's a, it's a life mask. So I, why it doesn't really look like Tom Baker, I don't know. But it... Well, and I think, I think, and again, I'm now going to put my art historian hat on here. Um, it is very rare that a life mask looks like um, the person of whom it has been taken from. Um, that's why we have sculptors rather than life mask <laughs> takers. Obviously, when you take someone's life mask, they are unnaturally right. still. Their flesh is unnaturally mm-hmm. silent. Uh, a sculptor or a good sculptor is able to animate someone's face um, rather than a life mask, which is, you know, by default, because you've got to stay still while you're having a life, right. life mask day. You kind of drain the life out, out mm-hmm. of a face. And, and life masks are, are very, very rarely used um, for that kind of actual... Well, if they are used for sculptures, they turn out badly. And I think this mm-hmm. is what happened. This is what happened happened here. Um, I think the sadism, in certainly in the first couple of episodes, and the kind of abject nature of the Sever mm-hmm. team, and the, the use of the hoarder, mm-hmm. and the kind of tests that they put themselves through, right. I find quite disturbing. They are a, a completely, again, kind of abject group of people who've completely devolved into this kind of pointless savagery. And I, I, again, at the time, and I think I still do, I find that a, to be a, to be a, a well, a good horrific. Concept. Well, the devolution was orchestrated by Zoannin, the computer supposedly that the doctor had programmed. Yes, the computer itself was running an experiment with a, a, a scientific religion-based society and a savage based uh, religious savage society, society. Ex- ex- exactly and you know your regular listeners will know this is a particular theme of mine i mean there's a sadistic element to that you know you have a a, a ruler of some kind who is treating his subjects as experimental animals mm-hmm. and is forcing them to become various aspects of society that this particular right. ruler is interested in and it's in it it's, it's unpleasant it's 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 sadistic and uh, controlling and uh, mm-hmm. not nice and again you know it's a very strong it's a good strong sci-fi idea and um uh you know and actually you know I, th- I think there's a number of harry harrison novels i'm just thinking of the kind of the death world mm-hmm. sequence that he produced you know where you have these you know kind of you know tribes of devolved individuals um you know who kind of used to be highly advanced and are now kind of regressed into uh-huh. savagery uh, i think is i think it's quite is quite common um and the crazy computer again you know doctor who always does a good crazy computer uh i'm thinking back to to boss <laughs> particularly who's my favorite of all the crazy computers i think zoannan is made particularly scarily crazy by having the voice of tom baker um as as, as, as or the or at least the face of mm-hmm. tom baker as kind of being his kind of interface which kind of mm-hmm. made it made it more scary than possibly uh, just a regular crazy computer would be yeah and they had a kid uh, who was kind of in there uh he was uh, a kid who went to uh, a school that pennant robert's wife worked at oh really that's who the kid was interesting interesting i didn't know that <laughs> um there you go so, not much uh, not really much to say on the face of evil when it comes to horror from my perspective though yeah as i said i think the hoarder and and those kind of tests that they put people through feel to me to be kind That's, of horrible reminded me of the peladon society yeah yeah a little bit yeah yeah um obviously face of evil predates 
by a number of years. A couple of years predates Blake 7, but there's a, there's, there's a kind of a Blake 7 feel to The Face of Evil in retrospect. Well, that's because Chris Boucher is right. the um, script editor for Blake 7. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Blake 7 was more of a, you know, an ostensibly sci-fi show than uh, than Doctor Who. And of course, you know, fans of various audio Who adventures will know that actually Boucher eventually kind of crossed the timelines or crossed the time streams and... Uh, elements of Mm -hmm. Blake 7 were kind of mixed into particularly um, continuing storylines that he developed from the next uh, story that he wrote, The Robots of Death. Yeah, which is our Agatha Christie story of the season. It is our Agatha Christie story, but it's given a distinctively horrific Who Mm -hmm. twist by just being kind Mm -hmm. of horrible. (laughs) Well, he... I mean, the, 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 the robots are really scary. It's really, uh, Chris Boucher is really mining uh, literature here with Asmanoff's Laws of Robotics. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a direct ripoff. I mean, really, of the case of Steel with the kind of the robot detective and the hidden kind of robo genius who ends mm-hmm. up being the, the villain. Of, but then it kind of mixed very nicely with Agatha Christie. And of course, you know, I mean, Asimov was, was ripping off um, Agatha Christie and his kind of robo detective mm-hmm. stories, anyway. But it's given a lot of life, obviously, by the superb mm-hmm. set design and the really awesome performances mm-hmm. from all of the actors, and the fact that the robots are so dispassionate in their <laughs> desire to murder you. As children in the playground, we had we got mm-hmm. a lot of mileage from um, implacably strolling after our friends <laughs> with our hands outstretched, you know, threatening to strangle them. That, that was a lot of fun. Um, there's blood here, I seem to remember. There's a, there's definitely... There's a, a bloody a, hand, a, yeah. A, a, there, there's a horrible bloody hand. Um, there is a complete mental breakdown um, of one of the characters. I'm just robophobia. Going, uh, robophobia. That is also particularly horrible. Mm-hmm. There are people, are people... I mean, robots getting stabbed in the head with, you know, laser... Lasertron probes, uh, Lasertron mm-hmm. PM uh, TM probes. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's all pretty nightmarish, actually. Um, you know, we have our heroes barricaded into the bridge again, trying to escape being attacked by these implacable, emotionless killing machines. Yeah, it's it's there's a there's a lot of really good horror in this one. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking of other horrible things. I mean, people get drowned in sand or potentially drowned in sand. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters are, are, are particularly unpleasant to each other. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of which the... makes it, which actually makes it seem more real. Exactly. They obviously none of them like each other, which mm-hmm. uh, again is kind of horrible. There's, there's no one. I mean, the friendly, obviously, you know, what's, what's so ironic? You know, the friendliest character, and I'm looking at the, my action figure of him right now is is um, is D eighty four, who is you know a robot. So obviously, you know, not really friendly at all. Please do not throw hands at Please me. Please do not throw hands at me. As, as far as I remember, there was a plan to have D84 be a regular character. Um, that would have ruled. Until they realized that that would cause like a lot of problems in terms of going anywhere <laughs> else in the universe other than this particular society. So they quickly canned that one. But yeah, you know, the robots have glowing red eyes, which are particularly mm-hmm. well realized. And the characters show, the human characters show a, a realistic amount of fear which mm-hmm. is very effective in terms of kind of you conveying 
conveying the peril in which the characters are, are, are submitted to. So what, what do you think of the return of the treatment that we had in Tom Baker's inaugural episode, Robot, where we're looking at Asmanov's three laws of robotics and violation of them and what that would mean? You know, robots are inherently dangerous. They're, I think they're saying in the script they're like stronger, faster, can outthink a human. And it's only programming that limits them with the laws of robotics. Right, but once right. those are circumvented, all hell breaks loose on the sand miners. The society is going to collapse, and that's what drives uh, people insane. Right, right. This was, a, this was a concern, obviously, in the early 70s. And we've seen uh, a rise of robotics to a point where if manufacturing is coming back to the United States or to Britain, right. it's going to be robotics. It's not going to be right. uh, humans right. on the assembly line. Right. So do you think the source material, this particular fear, uh, has a, a place to return in, say, 21st century? Who is this? A, is this something that we could mine for new avenues of horror in contemporary who uh, I, I think we already are in some ways i mean as far as i understand it the angels in the christmas on the titanic episode or whatever that episode is called um those kind of golden robots um mm -hmm. i think we're very self-consciously modeled on the robots of the robots of death right i think uh you know this idea of uh you know artificial intelligence you know turning against us is i actually don't think that is going to happen i think hmm. I don't think we will be able to create an artificial intelligence, in my opinion. And obviously, I know a huge amount about it, so I'm definitely qualified to <laughs> pontificate about that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, robots are always dodgy. Um, I can't think of a sci-fi... Well, I probably could if I really thought about it. I can't... Off, offhand, I can't think of a sci-fi story where, you know, having robots hasn't gone wrong in some sort of way. You know, even like an incredibly benign and therefore sort of boring robot, like, I don't know, Data from Star Trek The Next Generation, has to have an evil twin um, who is an evil right. robot because they go wrong. Okay. In my opinion, yeah. Yeah. Okay. In, so certainly in a sci-fi context, I can't really see that mm -hmm. robots are ever going to be... I think, I think the human race has got way too much other things to worry about than us creating a race of super intelligent robots that would turn against us. The other kind of nightmare scenario is the gray goo where we have nanotechnology oh, yeah, that is yeah. yeah, self-replicating. So that would just go take all organic material to replicate itself. Yeah, and did, did Doctor Who's never done Grey Goo. Has Doctor Who ever done Grey Goo? Yeah, I mean, I the empty, empty Child Doctor Dances. Yeah, I was going to say, Moffat's touched on it in The Empty Child, mm -hmm. but never as a kind of world-spanning no. threat. I have to say, in terms of kind of robots, you know, autonomous drones, you know, going crazy and having too much autonomy and killing people, um, I actually would have said that we've got enough problems with humans <laughs> killing other humans. Uh, to imagine that we've, we we that you know that another problem that doesn't exist yet is a kind right. of bigger problem than that I think you know I think we do just just a good enough mm -hmm. job already in terms of slaughtering each other and maybe we should address that first well should we address next the talons of Wang Chiang the talons of Wang Chiang yes. as a horror so. pastiche it's certainly Jack the Ripper meets the face of Fu Manchu uh, with a good. Yeah, and a good uh, yeah. dollop of Sherlock Holmes in it. It's it's all that crazy Alan Moore, Victoriana, League of Extraordinary mm -hmm. Gentlemen stuff all mashed up into one glorious great big mashup. Yeah, probably Bob um, Holmes uh, 
uh, one of his best scripts, I guess. Exit all the things that Bob used to read when mm-hmm. he was a kid, uh, all mashed together into one glorious mashup, which, uh, as far as I've read, was a kind of deliberate swan song by Hinchcliffe and Holmes, and they basically spent all the money that was available, which accounts for season 15 having not a lot of money left. Uh, to do The Invasion of Time, which is why that ended up to being a bit of a pants episode um, or story, because they spent everything, all the money on the talents of Wen Chiang. And the money is right up there on the screen. It looks like a million dollars. The acting is superb. The horror elements are all present and correct. It's a little bit dodgy racially-wise. Um, very, very, I mean, that's that's the biggest... Well, there's two big knocks against the talents of Wang Chiang that for our contemporary critical Doctor Who audience would be the racism, the casual embrace of the Chinese stereotypes and uh, actors in yellow face, John Bennett playing Lee Sang Chang that is doing with the dodgy fake accent, you know, the eyes made up to be uh, look oriental. So those, those type of things. And, you know, if you even look at the, the assassin crew that go after Leela and the doctor, yeah. uh, there's only one that's even um, Asian. Every, everyone else is very obviously... Uh, um, uh, obviously white, I think. I mean, I think, right. yeah, I mean, let me, let, let me just try and construct an argument against that, which, you know, obviously I'm not really going to do a very good job at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were relatively few Asian actors to pick from. You know, at that point, you either had, Bert, in the mid-70s, you either had Bert Kwok, or David Yip um, were the two Chinese actors in Britain that you could call on to be Chinese. So, you know, I guess, you know, they could have tried harder. Even if they did cast Chinese actors, the stereotypes are pretty prolific in it. And where Holmes could have had impact of the doctors saying, you know, he doesn't really agree with it, he uses some of the stereotypical languages himself. So there's really not even a separation of, well, the doctor disapproves of this or anything. He just kind of goes in character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, the the place where the doctor and Leela have come to is a, some kind of stereotype mm-hmm. universe where everybody is a particular stereotype. Mm-hmm. The Londoners, the Cockneys are stereotypes. The policemen are stereotypes. Mm-hmm. There is no one really in the entire kind of panoply of... I mean, and maybe actually the only person who, again, who isn't a stereotype is Magnus Greel, because he's, though he is kind of like a stereotypical evil right. villain. Um, John Bennett as Lee Sen yeah. Chang, obviously it's a severe misstep to do Yellowface. Right. And I think that is completely certainly to our eyes, inexcusable. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the production team at the time would have said, well, you know, if Bert Kwok can't do it, and if David Yip can't do it, well, who are we going to get right. to do it? Um, I would say that if you discount, and I'm not saying you should discount, but if you discount the yellow face aspect, Bennett does a really, really mm-hmm. good job. Um, and there is very much, certainly when I when I watch Talents, Talents of Wang Chiang, there is a strong demarcation between the very exaggerated Chinese accent that he does on the stage where he's playing a stereotypical right. Chinaman compared to the voice that he does when he is right. off stage. Um, and the character of Li Sen Chang has an immense amount of mm-hmm. pathos. I mean, his, his arc as a character is very, very poignant. And you know, he realizes that his God is a, you know, is a false mm-hmm. God. Etc. 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 So it's 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 it's, it's, it's a, a strong great, performance. It's a strong performance by a very good mm-hmm. actor. 
it's done in yellow face, which is mm-hmm. inexcusable. So, I mean, that's that's my kind of right. take on on you know Lee Senchang. The other knock against the story is the undermining of Leela's character, in that she's given she's given some agency, but she's always being undermined in that agency. So, like, she breaks into uh, Magnus Greel's under underground laboratory, and she escapes and only to scream witless crashing through a sewer with a giant rat taking after her for example yeah yeah which i mean again you know i mean i think we're kind of dropped into universe stereotypes mm-hmm. of she's a damsel in distress right. I mean, she, which is she, totally not her character but i mean she you know she does a pretty good job kind of escaping from right. that but yeah you know i, I guess uh, um right I mean, just to settle on some of the horror aspects, obviously, you know, um, Phantom of the Opera, Sexton right. Blake, uh, Fu Manchu, all of that's present. Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Well, just just a, just yeah, just the lighting in the fog, <laughs> you know, with the, the shadows, the fog, the opium den. Exactly. Um, I, I can't remember what the movies are, but there's any number of movies where mm-hmm. there is a malevolent ventriloquist dummy. Um, the Mr. Sin character is, you know, particularly horrific because, you know, it's played by a very, very talented uh, midget actor who I think is still going. Um, I think he played all of the Oompa in the most recent adaptation yeah. of um, Willy Wonka, as far as I mm-hmm. remember. Deep Roy, yeah, who's very, very talented actor. Right. But this idea of, uh, you know, this this homunculus, you know, having the brain of a pig. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of just just an icky, hor- horrible concept. <laughs> right. The idea of you know young women having their life essence drained away by this kind of mm-hmm. melted vampire from the future. Yeah. Again, you know, particularly horrible. But as a kid, you know, I mean, the the, the Mister Sin character, you know, didn't actually give me nightmares, mm-hmm. but it was certainly a character that was threatening to give me nightmares. Um, it was that's it's, it's it's and again, it has a horrible it the, has a horrible mask. Mm-hmm. It is completely without compassion or humanity um uh very very nasty in that way i think one of the things i think that really helps sells the horror in this is the sound design and if you listen uh the external shots you get the get the river thames sounds coming off of it in in the in the palace theater you get certain echoes you get the footsteps um underneath the stage you get you get flowing water there is really good sound design that helps provide an immersive environment that adds to the creepiness to the horror to the suspense of the whole setting yeah well again i mean as as, as any fool know um there's 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 no (laughs) period that the bbc does better than the victorian period so I think everyone says, you know, one of the one of the pitfalls of who certainly during the 70s and I think definitely during the 80s is that the BBC allocates the designers right. that you have to work with for any any particular show uh, and it's you know it's great that when the who goes Victorian um mm-hmm. all BBC designers affects people sound designers Lighting diners, designers, right. etc. If there's one thing that they know how to do, they can do Victorian London. They all cut their teeth on that. Yeah. <laughs> they all cut themselves. Charles Dickens. There you go. It's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fog, the Thames, Cockneys. <laughs> it's all. It's all. It's all. It's meat and drink to the BBC. That 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 that, that kind of stuff is. Um, and it's a you know it's a very it's very effective. I um, mean even down to the you know everyone says that the. Uh, uh, 
you know, the rat is disappointing. Um, well, we're... it is disappointing, but it's it's a very effective horror concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's again, let's look at H.G. Wells and um, right. you know, Food of the Gods. You know, the kind of this idea of the giant, the giant animal, mm-hmm. and especially something as horrible as a rat. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, where they went wrong with the rat is they they didn't slick it down. They could have got some grease or oil to for that fake fur, and it would have looked more rodent like. Just one missed agenda item in the production meeting. Right. Someone should have put their hand up and said, you know, should we just get some small figure and just sw- sl- slick it down a bit? Mm-hmm. And that point was not made, and that's the problem with the rat. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is the only problem with the rat, actually. It's a <laughs> remarkably effective mm-hmm. piece, of, piece of costume design or effects design, apart from the lack of wetness of the fur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. So, anything more on the... Talons of Wang Chiang, at least from the I horror loved, aspect. Love the Talons of Wang Chiang. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, as is the Robots of Death. Actually, uh, those are my some of my two top top who's uh, Magnus Greel is just a particularly horrible. Hor- and I think again, you know, it's got this great Holmesian, mm-hmm. and by Holmesian, I mean Robert Holmes, not Sherlock Holmes. Um, this great Holmesian effect which i think robert holmes was so good at and you know i think he he learned from 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 you know the sci-fi authors that he obviously followed so so closely it's mm-hmm. just this level the its ability to suggest cultures mm-hmm. without having to fully describe them you just get this suggestion of this you know, this war with the icelandic alliance mm-hmm. and there's chinese people involved and it's the 51st century and there's a brain of a pig right just beautifully, very, very carefully written and very carefully done. Yeah, he takes great care in that, but then he leans against the stereotypes for many of his other characterizations. And, I, and, I, and again, I mean, I, 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 I'm interrupting there because I'm saying, you know, I, I think, I think, and that's absolutely deliberate. I mean, I think he's, you know, this is this is one of the last, um, you know, this is, you know, this is the kind of swan song of the Hinchcliffe Holmes partnership, and right. he just wanted to do a project that had all of the things that he loved the best in, you know, mm. and I, 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 I don't know, but I'm willing to bet any money you like that, you know, he grew up reading Sexton Blake mm-hmm. and Sherlock Holmes right. and stories about Jack the Ripper, as you, mm-hmm. as again, as you remember, you know, Holmes was originally a policeman. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to put everything that he loved the most into one show. And mm-hmm. that's why they're all stereotypes, because these are all stereotypes that he loved. Yeah, um, Bob Holmes did, this is a rewrite of a, a story outline from Robert Banks Stewart, the writer behind Terror of the Zygons and right. uh, Seeds of Doom. It was going to be called The Foe from the Future. Right. And uh, Bob Holmes found it unworkable and he did uh, his own riff on it and rewrote it and set it in Victorian London. And Victorian London, like yeah. you said, probably uh, touched upon all the story tropes and elements that he liked when he was a young yeah. young child yeah yeah all those penny dreadfuls from the 20s and 30s i'm guessing your top two from the season would be talons and robots of death those are my top two from the season mm-hmm. definitely yes um and, and yours are which i wonder i would probably rank the deadly assassin my number one followed by robots okay I mean, I, I, for Deadly Assassin, I mean, I rate it highly. Um, the Matrix sequences, I think, are unparalleled mm-hmm. um, in Classic Who. I think the wrapping around those sequences, uh, I don't find fully, fully, fully convincing. And certainly, the, <laughs> I think the, the resolution of the Deadly Assassin, it's a kind of Hollywood splody nonsense, yeah. which is right. fine. Um, and I'm not really criticized, but I, I think that that mm-hmm. knocks it down a couple of points for me and kind of brings up Robots of Death and uh, which I guess, you know, obviously mm-hmm. 
talent of Wang Chang has a kind of, you know, villain's lair exploding kind of James Bond ending as well. But, you yeah. know. I guess I really enjoy the performances in Deadly Assassin with uh, George Pravda as oh, yeah. Castle and Spandrel with uh, yeah. and Eric, Eric Chitty, yeah. coordinator in Engen. Yeah, no, those are, yes, those are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is so perfectly, all those characters in Deadly Assassin are so perfectly drawn mm-hmm. by, um, by Bob Holmes. And I mean, it's the same reason why I really enjoy the Deadly Assassin too, is because the the actor's portrayal of those characters really make that script come alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, of the of the three Hinchcliffe and Holmes seasons, what do you think is the most horrific? Good question. What is the most horrific? I am going to go with. Well, it depends. What is the most horrifying, or what is the one that is the most satisfying mashup? mashup of horror genres and tropes mm-hmm. um i would say that the most satisfying mashup of horror genres and tropes would be the brain of morbius mm-hmm. and i would say the one that is the most horrifying is the seeds of doom mm, okay exactly um how, how, how about how about for you uh, put him on the spot horrific uh, i think the ark and i think the ark in space is probably the most horrific Right, good. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, the whole Hinchcliffe home era is kind of exploration of body horror, but I right. think the Ark in Space. I think uh, Moore's uh, depiction of Noah is really good. Right, right, right. Um, for combination of all the tropes, I think the Towns of Wang Chiang probably weaves the most disparate elements together, despite yeah. its flaws. But it is. It is very, as it is a very, it, it, it hasn't aged as well as I would have liked it to. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to, yes, I, I, will, I will have to reluctantly agree with you. <laughs> reluctantly agree. Probably call it a wrap then here. Let's, let's, let's wrap this one up. Well, no, we have to, we have to, we have to say our goodbyes. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, how, how can we say our goodbyes in a, an appropriately body horrific way, <laughs> as if our life essence is being sucked out of us, or if our faces are melting in a time cabinet, or if we are changing into an antimatter monster, or if our bodies are being consumed within by an alien parasite? <laughs> All you have to say is we are. Why don't we just say you've been listening to episode 20 of the Metabilis 2 Experience. I've been David. And I have been your bodily horrific Ben. (laughs) And keep on listening. (laughs) Keep on listening. Uh, uh, Next week, I'm not sure what what we're talking about next week, but it'll be just as good, we promise. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number 2, at gmail.com, or 
on Twitter at Metabulous2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.